I am not so foolish as to come out here and prophesize doom and gloom for Avatar 2. I'm very curious. I'm curious to see if people show up and if they respond in the same way they responded in 2009 and 2010. This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Daniel Luria, the Editorial Director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to covering the world of theatrical exhibition. Joined once again by our co-hosts, Russ Fisher, the Editorial Director of the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content for movie theaters, and Rebecca Polly, the Deputy Editor of Box Office Pro. In today's episode, we are going to be looking over the recent changes over at uh, Warner Brothers with HBO Max, now under new management and new directions going on in that studio and in its streaming arm. And in our feature segment, we are going to be launching a new feature here just because it's August and uh, we just decided to do it. We're going to be looking back at 2009 at the box office and going over that year's top 10 releases as we look forward to this year's release of Avatar The Way of Water. So what better way of looking forward to the next uh, Avatar sequel coming up at the end of the year by looking back at the last time we were graced by a new James Cameron movie, 2009. Wow, seems like a long, long time ago. But let's get into this HBO Max thing that we've been teasing, guys, because it's it's been everything that everyone's been talking about on the internet over the past week. I've been on vacation. I've missed a lot of the conversation around this. Once I came back, I started reading up on it. It seems like much ado about nothing. Am I misreading it? Uh, Russ, Rebecca, fill me in on what's going on here. Okay, so Discovery bought Warner Brothers and HBO Max and everything else from AT&T. This is a merger that was set in motion over a year ago. It was finalized this spring. It's one of the biggest ever mergers. And as a result, it has uh, drawn extra scrutiny and a lot of criticism, much of it justified, uh, because it is this combination of two giant but very different media companies. Um, One thing that has happened is that under David Zaslav's leadership, Some titles have been pulled away from HBO Max. They quietly disappeared. Um, And this happens with streaming all the time. But the big deal here, according to some onlookers, was that these were so-called HBO Max originals, which is to say movies that seemed like they had been made for HBO Max. Uh, In most of these cases, they actually weren't. They were acquisitions. They were branded very early on just as the service launched. They weren't actually made by Warner Brothers. A couple were made by Sony. And at the same time, Zaslav canceled Batgirl, which was planned as an exclusive HBO Max streaming endeavor rather than a theatrical then streaming uh, DC movie. And that's a title that you had uh, brought up a couple of weeks ago on this podcast, Ross, is something that you wondered, what's going to happen with this title? Is this going to end up in theaters from Warner Brothers? You couldn't really know why it wouldn't. Plot twist here, it's not going out anywhere. I mean, a 70 million plus production cost written off for tax savings, according to Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg and his reporting this week. Yikes. I mean, I know there's been a lot of chatter online as to this decision. How do you guys read this big move from uh, HBO, Warner Brothers, whatever the heck they are these days, to just pull the plug on this entirely? The key concept at Warner Brothers Discovery has been trim costs. So um, they have done some big layoffs already. Reporting is that there are going to be more layoffs in September, which makes sense. I mean, I hate to say it, but it's you've combined two massive companies. There are going to be some redundant departments. Naturally, some of those jobs are going to be cut. Um, 
It's not good, but that's the way these things happen. Um, so one of the reasons these mega mergers are questionable from the beginning. Um, but the whole thing was cut costs, cut costs, cut costs. So that tax write down on a 70 to 90 million investment for Batgirl, it's like on a spreadsheet, maybe it makes sense. From a public relations standpoint, I think it's a huge mistake. I haven't seen the movie. It just seems weird. Like I think it's very difficult for the average person or the average fan to see that sort of decision where you've got a movie that's basically done. Uh, they also canceled the Scoob sequel, which was also close to completion. Those two movies are all but in the can, all but completed, and now they're just gone into a void. Those are weird decisions. Will they ever return? I don't know. They also point to a bigger underlying issue at Warner Brothers, which is the Warner Brothers handling of the DC umbrella well, of properties other... overall. Well, quote, oh, quote from David Zaslav here, uh, this idea of expensive films going direct to streaming, we cannot find an economic case for it. We can't find an economic value for it. So uh, they applied that, uh, that reasoning even to two expensive films that were literally almost made. And I think that's fair. When we talk about where the studio wants to go, the, the former hierarchy there was all about streaming. That entire team, that entire strategy of day and date of prioritizing their streaming platform is gone, is done. Those executives received their nice golden parachute after inflicting God knows what amount of damage to theatrical. They're gone. They can buy their house, their new house if they want to. Theatrical moves on. We keep on trudging along. The new leadership cups in, they're making strong decisions. I think with the quote you bring in, Rebecca, I think we all tend to agree with that uh, in that we're excited to see Warner Brothers putting theatrical back up front. The point that Russ raises, I think, is equally as important. What are you doing with your talent relations? Because it's one thing to say this movie maybe isn't ready to go on streaming or maybe this movie isn't ready to go on theatrical. There's always reshoots. You don't have to throw all that away, and you don't have to burn your talent relations. Or dump what? it. I mean, they, yeah. they, they, messed, they, they angered Christopher Nolan for going to streaming, and now they're angering other people in this new iteration of uh, The Warner talent Brothers. relations side of things is going to be very, very delicate with this new management team in place. And even though we're completely behind philosophically where they're at, putting theatrical front and center, we still have to call out decisions being made that – hurt this ecosystem as a whole. And I think we're all a little bit nervous on what the talent relations side of this uh, means. I'm, I've been seeing on Twitter, so, you know, such hyperbole about, oh my gosh, what does this mean for HBO Max? HBO Max is going to go under Warner Brothers is looking away from it. I mean, Russ, as someone who's kind of plugged into the entire uh, media ecosystem, what are the real consequences of this, do you think? Does it really mean anything that those six movies got cut from HBO? I mean, what are we talking about here in terms of implications? Look, movies come and go from streaming all the time. And it's more unusual when something that is branded and original from a specific channel goes away. It doesn't happen very often. You don't see Netflix original movies disappearing for the most part. Maybe a few have, but by and large, they're <laughs> what they do is they disappear in the algorithm, but they don't disappear from the service. Um, and one could argue that there's not very much difference between them. I think that there's 
there are probably a lot of licensing details behind some of these Max originals that went away. Again, like these are movies like Charm City Kings, which was a, a Sundance title that was acquired by, I think, Sony Pictures Classics that was going to be released uh, in theaters by SPC. It you know, was a, a casualty of the pandemic. Um, HBO Max picked it up as one of its first, you know, exclusive titles, but it was really just a licensing deal. My guess is that nobody was watching that title on HBO Max and that uh, there was an opportunity to cut costs by ditching that license. Will it come back? I don't know. The movie's on Blu-ray. It's not like it's gone. Certainly, though, I think, again, this comes back to that talent, talent and even audience relations question. Like, what are you really subscribing to HBO Max or any other service for and are you going to get it? And those are questions that I think are a little nebulous. We'll see where this goes because uh, though there aren't a ton of details out now at this point, uh, they are launching a kind of co-branded all-in-one together uh, streaming service. I think uh, the plans are it will start rolling out of the U.S. next summer. So what is that even going to look like? What impact is that going to have on HBO Max and theatrical, if any? I mean, we don't know what that's going to be like. We don't even know it's going to, what it's going to be called. I think there have been reasonable criticisms levied at Warner Brothers and HBO for the way HBO Max was rolled out in the first place. But those are old speed bumps that most people have forgotten. You know, like it's a good service. It's been a good service. It still has the potential to be a great service. Um, I think the idea of combining them is like, yeah, of course they're going to combine them. Why would they have two different services? You know, there's no reason to do that. The bigger question is what, which tech do they keep? Do they keep the discovery or the HBO max? Pretty clear. They're going to keep the discovery te- tech because Hey, newsflash discovery bought <laughs> Warner brothers and HBO yeah. max, not the other way around. Of course they're going to keep their native tech. But what's it going to look like? How is it going to be for consumers? Nobody knows. And we'll continue covering the latest developments on the Warner Brothers theatrical slate over at our website, boxofficepro.com, in the coming weeks and months. But now let's go on a quick break before we come back for our feature segment, where Rebecca, Russ, and I are going to be going over the top 10 movies at the 2009 box office. It's our look back on the year that was defined by James Cameron's release of Avatar. We'll also be looking at all the other movies that were part of that cultural moment in 2009. Coming back after this break. And we're back here on the Box Office Podcast, looking at the top 10 movies of 2009. Now that we're looking forward to the release of James Cameron's Avatar, The Way of Water, coming out this December, gives us an excuse to look back at the last James Cameron movie to hit theaters. We'll skip the conversation about our favorite movies from 2009. We'll keep it just limited here on the top 10 highest grossing movies that were originally released in 2009. Let's start with number 10 coming out on December 25th, 2009, just a week after the debut of Avatar. You would think that a movie that opened on Christmas 2009 would just get massacred at the box office, but Guy Ritchie's take on Sherlock Holmes starring Robert Downey Jr. actually did pretty well for itself, even though it got completely overshadowed by the release of Avatar coming in at number 10 of films released in 2009, opening at 62.3 million in its opening weekend, going on to gross 209 million in North America. Did you guys see this movie in theaters? Because uh, I was in a very different time in my life here as we entered 2009. I'm not sure I would have seen too many of the movies in the top 10. I, think- I, I did, yes. 
and it, correct me if I'm wrong, it was kind of framed as more Sherlock Holmes action star with a lot of slow-mo punching scenes. And uh, I mean, similar to what Guy Ritchie did later with the King Arthur kind of making it scrappier. It's a Guy Ritchie um, movie. It, it's a Guy yeah. Ritchie take on an IP. It is. But much more importantly is Robert Downey Jr. Look, let's be honest. You know, he'd had a couple of movies out since Iron Man, but this was the first movie since Iron Man came out a year and a half earlier that looked like the Robert Downey Jr. energy from Iron Man. That's what made this movie a hit. End of story, full stop, was you saw Iron Man, you loved it, you were like, oh my God, Robert Downey Jr. is great, I forgot or I didn't know. And you know, a movie like The Soloist, which he was in, didn't really give general audiences that same vibe. This one did, and that's why it was a hit. I'll be surprised if any of us have seen what's number nine on this list. Yeah, Daniel, you mentioned that we're not going to be talking about our favorite movies of the year, but this one is my favorite movie of 2009. You've seen uh, this Alvin, movie, Rebecca. No, I'm kidding. I have not seen it. And also, my favorite movie of 2009 is definitely Paul Blart and Cock. <laughs> But we're talking about Alvin and the Chipmunks, the Squeakquel. Uh, so another, obviously, another franchise IP. I have I've never seen any uh, any of the Alvin and the Chipmunks movies, and I'm fine with that. Well, Alvin and the Chipmunks, the Squeakquel, actually coming out on December 23rd. Another movie coming at the shadow of Avatar. Not getting a lot of headlines when it first came out, opening to $48 million in North America, topping out at $219 million as it legged out through the beginning of 2010. You have to imagine it's kind of a Phantom Menace, the mummy situation where avatars just sold out or people are going to the cinema anyway. And then, all right, well, we need something to see. <laughs> and the, that's a great point, Rebecca, because here you have Avatar coming out from 20th Century Fox. 20th Century Fox knowing that they've got a counter-programmer here with its Alvin and the Chipmunks sequel, and coming in with two movies that finish uh, among 2009 releases in the top 10. Uh, two movies so far that we've covered, both Sherlock Holmes and Alvin and the Chipmunks, the sequel, coming on the back of that Avatar release and still performing pretty well. Uh, but that wasn't the case, actually, for our number eight movie. This is a surprising title to be here in the top 10. A popular drama, The Blind Side, coming out on November 20th, that Thanksgiving Day weekend, opening to $34 million, a Warner Brothers title that tops out at $255 million domestic. Numbers that I wish we would have for a big studio drama these days. Hopefully we can get back to that point. This is another movie I didn't see. Add to it that it's about American football, and I'm just, uh, I, I wasn't in the back for this one. Do you? What do you guys remember from this release? Um, I mean, same. It's it's something. It's a football movie. I'm I'm not there generally. Uh, it was. Uh, did it win the Oscar that year? I know it won Sandra Bullock her Oscar. It was nominated for Best Picture. Bullock won her. That was her first and so far only Oscar. Was for that role. Um, I wouldn't really call it a football movie. I mean, it's a rich lady helps a poor guy drama. Um, there's certainly a racial aspect to it. The performances are good. Like it's, I didn't see it at the time, but it's a movie I've seen on cable a couple of times. And look, Bullock is very, she has a good presence in the movie. She's good in it. I 
don't know that I really like this movie, but I can see why she won the Oscar. It's exactly the sort of performance that Oscar voters really like. It appeals to a certain demographic. You know, it's like there's a, you know, an older, middle to older audience that loves this kind of movie and that clearly very much responded to it and still does. You know, it's a it's a cable staple at this point. And, um, and it's one of so, only two movies in the top 10 that is not... Um, part of a franchise, didn't get sequels. It's the, one of the two standalones. Yeah, that's, I think that's an important thing to say. And the sort of movie that we would kill to get at the box office with this level of success this year. Uh, original title coming in from a major studio that has to run at the Oscars, makes over $250 million domestic. It uh, reiterates this appeal of Sandra Bullock as a star that I don't know what you guys, what your guys' relationship is to the Sandra Bullock star phenomenon. For me, my favorite roles of Sandra Bullock are that star turn in Speed. I think uh, one of those wonderfully underappreciated movies as the years go on. It sort of surprises me that Speed isn't talked about more these days. I love that movie. And then, of course, Miss Congeniality, one of my favorite studio comedies of the last 25 years. Two movies that, for me, those are the two Sandra Bullock movies I keep. I think for a lot of folks, they'd probably put in the blind side in that list. Absolutely. Yeah. And Gravity. I don't really want to watch Gravity over and over, but she's excellent in it. Oh, of um, course. It's, How could I forget that one? She's wonderful in that film. It's a terrific theatrical experience. She's great in it. But yeah, I mean, this is the sort of movie that only comes around every once in a while. Um, you know, it's it's uh, the, the next time, well, maybe not the next time, but the next movie along these lines that I think of is Green Book. Um, and it's interesting that they're both movies that have, uh, you know, a component of like race relations to them. Uh, there's something about that. I'm sure there are producers who look precisely at these movies and are kind of, you know, did Green Book get made because somebody looked at the blind side and was like, hey, this can work. Let's do this. I don't know. Uh, but occasionally, once a decade, a movie like this hits and it, you know, it cleans up at the box office, it cleans up at the Oscars. It's it happens with enough regularity that you can't call it an outlier, but we certainly don't see these very often. And Sandy still has it. She gave us another hit uh, at the box office this year with The Lost City, which I really enjoyed. And she's in Bullet Train. Yeah. And as we go up to the number seven film here on the schedule, I do want to bring up this point because this being a theatrical exhibition podcast, we can't omit what was going on in the industry during this time. 2009 is a period in time when the digital cinema transition is really going full force. Everyone's trying to hop on that train. It's probably on the latter side of things where a lot of the circuits are already well into that digital transition. But a lot of independent cinemas, a lot of second run theaters are trying as hard as they possibly can to get digital projectors so they can put on the big movies that came out in the summer of 2009 and have a shot at that late 2009 release date for Avatar. That was definitely the case for Star Trek, which was one of the biggest films of the summer. This is J.J. Abrams' relaunch of the Star Trek franchise, and it was one of those great little early tests of how far that digital cinema transition was going across the industry to play a big, big blockbuster. This movie opened on May 8th, 2009 to $75 million, reinvigorated a franchise that had been dormant for many, many years, topped out at $257 million domestic. Did you guys see this? I have to be completely transparent here. I've never seen a single Star Trek movie. I'm actually gonna say that a lot 
in this top 10 in 2009, there's a lot of franchises and IPs that I've never seen a single one of those movies. It came out again while I was in graduate school where I'm not really paying attention to contemporary cinema. So I'm out of touch with these titles. I wasn't there for the Star Trek J.J. Abrams relaunch, but I remember a lot of my friends that weren't Star Trek fans became Star Trek fans when this movie came out. What was your impression when this movie comes out? That's me. You were you were buried in classic film, and I was um, meeting up with people from the internet and going to a screening at the AMC and uh, Times Square to see, see this movie with people I didn't know. That but, sounds like a better um, use of my time, honestly. Yeah, no, I I liked it. I really liked it. Um, I, the casting is just like perfect down to the last uh, little detail. Um, I, you know, it it kind of is. You know, they. I feel like the franchise is kind of dormant now. I mean, the second one wasn't good, but Star Trek Rion was fine. I mean, it's freaking Star Trek. This first one, it was so good. Um, it was successful. It, it did give room for the franchise to go in interesting places, and it's just kind of strange to me that it's fizzled. Though, it, obviously, there's other Star Trek stuff going on. I think there are a couple of big things with this movie. One, it's J.J. Abrams' second directorial effort. He had made Mission Impossible 3 prior to this. Uh, Mission Impossible 3 is, is like a movie that looks a lot like it was directed by a guy who mostly does TV. Um, you know, it's not the most expansively cinematic of the Mission Impossible movies. It's probably the least <laughs> expansively cinematic of the Mission Impossible movies. And I think with Star Trek, Abrams really stepped up into, uh, you know, in some ways went overboard like with his lens flares and things like that to the degree where it was kind of a joke with this movie. But it's a very cinematic movie. It And it has, as you said, a great cast. You know, it's, it's Chris Pine's breakout movie, um, Zachary Quinto's breakout movie. Uh, you know, the, a lot of people got attention on them because of this movie. I think it's really good. I think it's a super fun movie, which nobody really expected, maybe. I was shocked by how much of just like a fun adventure it felt like. Yeah, it was, uh, it was yeah it's a fun time. It's a fun time. It looks good. It plays well. And also I think it's significant because I think Star Trek in 2009 was part of the tipping point where the reboot became acceptable. Um, we'd had some reboots prior to this. We'd had a lot of like TV to movie reboots. We'd seen several of those, including obviously Mission Impossible. But um, this was the point, I'm not going to say it is the movie where the reboot became okay, but it was part of a pretty narrow set of movies that changed people's thinking. You know, I think a lot of people looked at the idea of a Star Trek reboot, new cast playing classic characters were like, come on, why are we doing this? And then the movie worked. And I think just collectively everybody said, well, okay, we're doing this now. And we've seen a lot of them in, you know, the, the decade plus since, and we're going to see a lot more of them. We're just going to keep seeing them. But Star Trek was very early in that wave. And it was, uh, and it was a big part of the, the sea change that happened, I think, both on the studio side and on the audience side. Now, you guys are both part of uh, fan communities around the sci-fi world, you know the mechanics of how fans react to these sort of titles. Did Star Trek, in that context, fulfill its potential in its relaunch, or did it come short after this first film? It fell short, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, it absolutely exceeded expectations for this one film. <laughs> and then, uh, yes, the second one was just was just bad. Don't cast Benedict Cumberbatch as Khan. Just don't do that. 
and Donut, that, that, that press store where they tried to pretend that he wasn't playing con. It's clear he's playing con. It's very, very Yeah, clear. they lied about it. They, they, they did a bunch of things they shouldn't have done with the second one, and which might have all been okay if the second one was a good movie, but it's not. You said Star Trek Beyond is pretty good. I agree. It's, it's perfectly fun. But this, this feels like, you know, earlier we were talking about Warner Brothers in DC. Star Trek has felt like for a while like a property that Paramount does not know what to do with. It has found success on television and streaming in the past few years. You know, it's rebuilt a fandom around a variety of new series that are out, most of which I've never even seen and probably never will. But there is a very active Star Trek fandom, which means that there will probably be movies again in the future. But I think Paramount really bungled everything with this sort of reboot of uh, in this era of Trek. Um, but this movie is good. And there are two elements, I think, when we talk about the summer of 2009 leading up to the release of Avatar in December, starting right now with this early May release of Star Trek. One is social media and the role of social media in promoting titles. We've spoken about this in the past, how a film like The Dark Knight was really pioneering in some of that social media viral marketing. We well, see and this, that this fully- was a year of paranormal activity too. I mean, that's uh, exactly that's, a that's, a, that that's the great example of how viral marketing and social media really elevates a lot of the films in release in 2009. You see that in action, how Facebook works to promote movies. That was a big topic that we were writing about in Box Office Magazine in this year. Another big element that we don't talk about too much when we look back on the film industry of 2009 2009. Russ, you mentioned this a second ago, was how Star Trek was able to connect with an audience now on TV and on streaming after its theatrical release. 2009 is this weird transition point where we've already peaked in home video sales and the DVD market. The DVD market is already stabilizing. It's already going down slightly. In an editorial in Box Office Magazine by NATO president and CEO John Fithian, uh, he writes about the alarming nature of home entertainment sales actually plunging. A very interesting column he wrote for us in the September issue in 2009, looking at what the impact of lower DVD sales could mean for theatrical down the line. At this point in time, people going to Best Buy and buying a $20, $25 disc was becoming less popular. Uh, Blockbuster was beginning to lose a lot of momentum to, at the time, the mail service of Netflix, which was already established, and Netflix's transition to streaming. Netflix first starts streaming in 2007. I don't know if you guys remember the first streaming uh, plans from Netflix. It was v- it was very few titles, right? I mean, it was kind of yes. tough to figure it out. You couldn't do it on your TV. But by 2009, That technology is improving, and the Netflix streaming catalog is growing and growing. So we're in this in-between phase where the home entertainment reference isn't Netflix streaming, isn't going out and buying a $25 DVD. It's actually going to a Redbox kiosk and getting a $1 disc rental. In 2009, this was the one growth area in home entertainment, so much so that Universal was tied up in a lawsuit against Redbox not wanting to have its titles be available for $1 rentals. We were talking about how do you price content for a one-off rental. You still had things like the iTunes store selling you what, like $4, $5 rentals. What were your recollections of that time when we were thinking about engaging with films outside of theaters? 
Yeah, I mean, I was still buying a lot of physical media, but there was no question that that market was in the midst of a big change. Uh, Netflix was, I, I don't know that I've ever used a red box, but I used Netflix and Netflix was crazy convenient because you could just create a list of movies that you wanted and not think about it. And then you'd send one back and you got the next one in your queue and it showed up and that was beautiful. Why would I go to a red box? Many fond memories of, of ordering the Netflix queue and reordering it and organizing of course. it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And and those movies that you knew that you kind of wanted to or should see and you just keep bumping them lower so that you could get, you know, whatever the top movie that you wanted, Star Trek, uh, showing up when it was available. But yeah, I mean, and I started streaming almost instantly. I saw you know, I was writing about tech a little bit. I, I knew about the Netflix streaming service right when it launched, as soon as it, was avail- as it was available for me. I began using it even with relatively few titles. It was like it was a novelty, but it was a novelty that provided something of value uh, and clearly <laughs> has continued to since that's now the dominant paradigm. And we get to that paradigm by having a really tough conversation on how do you price home entertainment? Because Up to 2009, when you have that model where you can go to Blockbuster, you can pay for a Netflix subscription, it wasn't the absolute convenience of an all-you-can-eat content buffet for 15 bucks, you can stream anything. That was not anywhere near the radar of any home entertainment viewer. You went to the movies to experience something on a Friday night, on a Saturday night, and then you either put something on your queue, you bought something, or you cross your fingers that you could find something for a dollar rental at a red box. This big transition, I think, really recalibrated the way we think about the movies. And I think we have to keep that in mind when Avatar comes out at the end of the year, that equation of how people engage and experience movies has changed radically between 2009 and today. But let's use that as a good transition to the number six movie of 2009, because this was a word of mouth title. This was an R-rated comedy that became a global word of mouth hit around the world The Hangover, the type of R-rated comedy that we don't see hit these heights anymore. This opened to 44 million on June 5th, 2009, topped out to 277 domestic. It's a movie that I remember watching, where was I? I think I was still in Miami. I probably saw this at the AMC Sunset Place 24. Out of the 10 movies here from 2009, I only saw two theatrically. It was The Hangover and Avatar. Those were the two movies I remember going to go see. But this was a movie I had zero interest in watching, but I felt I had to see just to keep up with my friends and them talking it, about it, it like when a, I went to It was bars. like a Napoleon Dynamite kind of feel, where like right. if you wanted to be in on the jokes and know what everyone was talking about. Yeah, they had like a, like a tiger and peppers and wolves. There were a lot of silly Mike jokes. Mike Tyson. That, yeah, you had to watch it to get the jokes that summer. And if you hadn't seen The Hangover, you weren't part of the jokes that entire summer. And that was the one summer before I went to graduate school, my last summer in Miami, I wanted to be part of all the, the funny jokes. Russ, you're thankfully a little bit older, so you didn't have to put up with as many obnoxious uh, callbacks and references to this title. How much did this hit in your demographic? It was big. I mean, you know, I was writing about movies at the time. The Hangover was huge. It, and it was a weird kind of huge because it was a sort of movie that you wouldn't expect to be gigantic. You know, at the time, the R-rated comedy was still 
kind of a thing, you know. Uh, it was having a resurgence, in fact. You know, you'd had um, stuff in the 2000s like Anchorman, but, you know, a movie like Step Brothers uh, had come out in 2008. We're moving towards, uh, you know, uh, I think what Superbad was 2010, so it was a kick year ass. in the future. Um, yeah, Kick-Ass falls in that zone, moving towards Bridesmaids, which was, what, 2011 and was kind of the apex of that like R-rated comedy from studios. Um, but So the idea of an R-rated comedy being a huge success wasn't totally alien at the time, but nobody really expected The Hangover to be what it was. You know, certainly Todd Phillips benefited from it. Bradley Cooper benefited from it. Uh, Zach Galifianakis benefited from it. You know, Zach Galifianakis, not a household name in, in early 2009. Very much so after The Hangover came out. You know, did anyone think that was going to happen? No. And it's kind of cool that it did. Ken Jeong, too, right? He was in the movie and it kind of right. made him. And Ken Jeong was, was huge because He was one of, of the three guys. He was just yes. kind of a supporting player. Correct. Yes. This movie absolutely made Ken Jeong's career. I never would have thought, I mean, I knew it was a massive hit, but 277.3 million domestic gross-wise, I, I didn't remember it came in top, in top 10 of the year. I mean, that's, that's crazy. I mean, they made two more of them immediately, you mm-hmm. know, and that doesn't happen unless something is a, is a success like this. And uh, yeah, Hangover was a big deal. Another word of mouth hit in 2009 that wasn't tied to a, to a big franchise was the big Pixar movie of that year coming out May 29th up. It opened to 68 million and played out to 293 million. I watched this years later uh, on VOD, uh, and I regret that, actually. Once I saw it, I realized how much I liked it. Uh, the first half, I, I absolutely love. The second half becomes a little bit more of a children's movie, uh, which is fine. That's what the movie is. You know, it was kind of at this point where it was like, Pixar can't really do anything wrong. And, it, and you're looking at like a movie with... A, a squat little octogenarian on the poster and you think like there's no way that this is going to be uh, able to continue Pixar's run of success uh, and it does and it does in a big way because it shows you like it really makes you think like good lord these people can turn anything into a good movie um, and well, that, we now be- know that that's not necessarily the case, but <laughs> correct me if <laughs> I'm correct me if I'm wrong, Russ. Wasn't I mean, this movies that came out in 2009. That was the first year that uh, AMP has kind of expanded uh, the Oscar pool for Best Picture, specifically to get some of those uh, high quality films that wouldn't necessarily fall into that bracket. And Up was one of them. District Nine. I mean, they both got Best Picture nods, which was highly unusual. Yeah, totally. And I mean, as long as a movie like Up is in contention for Best Animated, which of course it won, it seems like there's virtually no chance it's going to win Best Picture. But that was part of that push to like at least get people more interested in the Oscars by opening the door to more popular releases. But yeah, I mean, Up is a big success. It's a good movie. I agree that it becomes more of a kid's movie in the back end, but it's still fun. And it's weird. Like, it's just an unusual movie. And it's I don't know. I'm glad it exists. I haven't seen a single installment of the three franchises that we're about to speak about right now. Uh, Let's start with number four as we start with the final four. The Twilight Saga New Moon, which actually now I'm a big fan of both of this franchise's uh, protagonists, both of its stars. 
I love Robert Pattinson. I love Kristen Stewart. I think they're wonderful actors among the most exciting ones working today. But I didn't see a single one of these. You might be tempted to think, oh, now I know they're really good actors. I'm going to go back and watch Twilight. Maybe there was some like glimmer of what they would become. There's not. There's uh, not? Don't, don't worry about that. The acting is bad. I will say, oh. I, I don't remember if it was, uh, which Twilight movie it was. There was some kind of press, I think I went to a press screening of one of them um, that had fans come in as well. Um, don't remember the movie, but it's a good movie to watch with a rabid crowd because they got into it. <laughs> I mean, I well, worked at Barnes I and Noble. I worked at Barnes and Noble when this when this series was like becoming a thing. It was okay. So you you insane. know the phenomenon, the social phenomenon around this. And the next uh, title that we're going to talk about, a Harry Potter movie, is also part of the Barnes and Noble, the multiplex bestseller to blockbuster model. The last, I think part of that model that, that we've seen, I think, in recent years. But I'm not even sure what number of Twilight sequels we'd had at this point. Russ, do you remember what number installment this one was in 2009? This is the second. The first movie was directed by Catherine Hardwick, who is an interesting choice, but who I think butted heads a lot with Stephanie Meyer, the creator of Twilight. Uh, I think they had some big differences of opinion as to uh, how scenes should be staged and how faithful to the novel the script should remain. Uh, there was a lot of contention. I think Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson, Robert Pattinson has always been transparently open about a total distaste for these books and for the characters and all of it. But I think he knew a star vehicle when he saw one and he benefited from it. And, you know, honestly, more power to him. Um, this is the second movie. It's directed by Chris Weitz, one of the American Pie guys, which is sort of like, okay, that's an interesting choice. I saw all of these movies theatrically. Um, I saw them all with like mixed fan and press screenings. Uh, the movies are by and large bad, uh, but they are fun in some ways, especially because of that audience reaction that you're talking about. This movie is a is a turning point in a way. Twilight was a little bit, but this one really was, which was the interaction between studios and fans in the promotional cycle. Um, Twilight, this movie, New Moon, came to Comic-Con, and you know this was a point where Comic-Con was... It was certainly not male-dominated, but the image was of a male-dominated fandom. And there was a, a, a lot of – conflict is too big a word, but Co uh, friction. friction. Let's, <laughs> yeah, let's call it friction with the notion of, uh, of, a, of a teen female skewing property and fandom really being like one of the biggest things in this space that had previously been like very superhero and sci-fi oriented – and it was this was a movie where the 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 promotion, especially around things like Comic Con, really started to change. Where you started to see studios embracing fandoms, whoever they were, because they you know they saw this Twilight fandom was rabid and was massive and was very very engaged. Uh, and so this is a point that really kicked off like ten years of studios very not just embracing but like greedily kind of chasing after this. That's kind of changed now, and uh, I think COVID helped change it, but it was already changing pre-COVID. Uh, but but this movie was a, a big deal in the summer of 2009, months before it opened, because of that uh, changing and shifting dynamic. 
This is, uh, I was working at a, a publication that focus of it at the time was the intersection of uh, feminism and geek culture. So yeah, there was a lot of stuff about Twilight. <laughs> it was, and it became a big thing that the, the books and the movies, um, there's some stuff in it that's not good. It's an abusive relationship, basically. But why are boys allowed to have their stupid fun things? And when girls do, it's somehow frivolous. I won't be going back to watch these movies after what I've just heard from uh, Rebecca's take. Uh, thank you for saving me uh, 18 hours of my life. And uh, the for- the this fourth one... One's, the fourth one's good. The fourth one has Michael Sheen just being crazy. So that one. <laughs> well, I- I'm going to be careful to ask the same when it comes to the Harry Potter movies. This is an example of a franchise that I was a little bit too old as a reader to get into the books. And I was a little bit too old as a moviegoer to get into the movies. And then when they sort of caught up with me age-wise, I was in grad school. I was just very far away from the multiplex. I'm, you know, I'm somewhere in like the 19-teens, you know, in French film history. Mm-hmm. I'm not paying attention to Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince opening on July 15th. $77 million weekend, topping out at a $301 million in North America, the number three release of 2009. What number of Harry Potters are we in here? And Rebecca, I want to hear from your experience on that uh, Barnes & Noble to movie coverage, because this must have been fascinating oh, growing man. up with this franchise. Oh, man, it was, it was, it was a lot. This is the uh, sixth movie in the franchise out of eight. There were seven books. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I worked the midnight release party for uh, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince and a handful of other Harry Potter books. And it was a madhouse. I mean, lining up. I mean, it was the the book equivalent of the Star Wars uh, prequels with like people lining up midnight. Just it, it was kind of electric. I mean, I was very, very tired at the end of the day, but I had a good time with it. Prior to this movie, I think that if you hadn't seen all of them, you could drop into a Harry Potter movie and more or less have your footing. You know, it was like there was kind of a, a clear object or event based plot line that drove through each story while also doing this bigger world building around it. I think this is the, the movie where if you're not already in the can with Harry Potter, there's no way to understand what's going on in this movie. Like this movie is just, even reading the recap, I mean, I've seen this movie a couple of times and I'm reading the recap and and it's like, what is going on in this film? And, and it's unfortunate because I think the cast is good. Like there's a lot of cool stuff production-wise going on in these movies. Um, I actually like the next two movies a lot more. I, I don't know if I'd call this movie the low point of the series because I think the first two are childish and kind of bad. I think the third, fourth, and fifth are really entertaining, and then the seventh and eighth movies uh, do some things that are really interesting and and uh, and are pretty kind of neat in their own right. But yeah, this movie is like deep in like the the leading to end game plotting of Harry Potter, and like I think this is probably the last one in the series that anybody's just going to drop in and watch, even if you're a fan. And speaking of uh, stupid, frivolous stuff that teenage boys get into, the Transformers franchise why did i did i not see a single one of the transformers movies to this day i haven't seen one of them even on like basic cable on the background transformers revenge of the fallen i don't know what number of sequel it is the number two film released in 2009 russ is now it's indicating it's the second one so it follows the original ish transformers opens to 108 million on june 24th tops out at 
402 million domestic, a massive, massive amount of money. Again, I skipped it. Rebecca, did you watch it? Because we're, we're going to have to ask Russ all the tough questions after a little bit. I, I was looking on uh, on IMDb to remind myself if I did watch it because I know I have watched a Transformer and I couldn't remember which one. It is not this one. It is the one with Stanley Tucci. I don't know the name of that one. I just know it's the one with Stanley Tucci. Um, but yeah, the, the Transformers uh, franchise for me was, was never in my wheelhouse either. What I remember about these movies, this one a little bit and then even more, the, I think uh, Dark of the Moon, the one that followed it, was the way that they're almost avant-garde films. They're almost experimental in their approach to story because Bay just does not care. And he just, like, characters will, like, walk into a building on one side, like, in Nebraska, and then walk through a tunnel and emerge from, uh, like, uh, an embassy in China. And you don't know why, and it doesn't matter. And it's just, like, there's a an approach to space and geography and character positioning and action that is completely free from any laws of physics or anything laws. It's free from laws. Almost respect that. I almost respect that Bay's just like, no, man, I'm going to go crazy here. Um, but I don't enjoy watching them. It seems like a big franchise that a lot of people participated in, uh, but maybe doesn't have that cultural staying power that uh, that others like the Harry Potter or even the um, the Twilight Saga do. Those movies are still movies that people talk about and, and remember watching. Well, at the, at the time, people knew they weren't art, let's say. <laughs> I think they were made to be, you know, and I think I've even talked about this on the podcast before, I think they're made to be amusement park rides. And they are. And, you know, you buy your ticket, you go you enjoy some air conditioning and popcorn and some whatever sort of absurd action for two hours and you go home and it doesn't matter if you watch them again. And before we go into the number one movie of the year, Avatar, uh, let's go very, very quickly on the movies that were released, uh, part of a big franchise that either didn't hit those heights or were winding down a big franchise. I'm just going to go over this list rather quickly, one by one. You guys can tell me your immediate reactions to these movies. In 2009, we had X-Men Origins Wolverine come out from 20th Century Fox in May 2009. This movie actually did decently well. It didn't end up in the top 10. This is the highest grossing superhero movie of 2009. Surprising because 2009, we don't have a single superhero movie in the top 10. The highest grossing one is this one in number 13. Made 179 million for 20th Century Fox. Disappointing, I would say, all in all, knowing what they had in their plans for these you know, breakaway titles for the X-Men series. Uh, the movie introduced Ryan Reynolds as Deadpool, uh, but like completely rewrote the character. So it annoyed fans from the beginning with that. And I think more crucially than anything else, this movie leaked. And another big title that didn't fall into the top 10, but ended up playing a big, big role in the entire decade to follow was Fast and Furious. Guys, this was the turning point of that Fast and the Furious franchise. This was that movie that needed to sort of change directions, and it did. It wasn't a massive hit in 2009. It did pretty well. It did well enough to revitalize the franchise. Ended up grossing $155 million that year, an April 3rd release. Ended up number 17 among those year's releases. I didn't see this movie, but I remember a lot of people I knew at the time saying, 
there's been a couple Fast and Furious movies, but this one you have to go see. Did you guys catch it? Because this franchise ended up being arguably the non-superhero franchise of the 2010s. This is really the movie where like the emphasis on family starts to take hold. This is the movie where a lot of the stuff that I think people would set as expectations for a Fast and the Furious movie were really codified, you know? Um, and you get Diesel coming back, which is a big deal. And so, yeah, this, this, is a, this is a building block for the future for Universal, no question. And that's on the positive side of things. Of course, a, a, a movie that ended up being very relevant in the decade to come. A franchise that ended up not working out because of a movie that was released in 2009, uh, G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra coming out in 2009, topping out at $150 million. Listen, that's a decent amount of money, but this movie really didn't help that franchise continue. This movie is, this movie is one of those that I had some friends who were like, no, actually, I mean... If you go in, it's surprisingly good. At least it's fun. You know, they were pitching it as like, oh, it's, it's so bad, it's good, you can enjoy it. I was lied to. It's not good. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, that was another uh, highly controversial franchise. There was a lot of stuff with, was this Mark Wahlberg not coming back? Channing Tatum, like, getting killed in the first scene? Basically, just all their stars from the first one left. One thing that definitely came to an abrupt end in 2009, however, was the latest iteration at the time of the Terminator franchise, Terminator Salvation, starring Christian Bale. There was a lot of momentum for this movie before it opened. I remember seeing this movie in theaters, guys. This is probably one of five that I saw that year. And I remember walking out going, what are they doing with this Terminator franchise? Only gross 125 million. This is an example of the Terminator franchise not finding its bearings the entire planned trilogy was scrapped after Terminator Salvation came out. Any quick reactions on this one? Because audiences did not like it and did not go. Terminator is yet another franchise that nobody has really been able to uh, make work on the big screen in a while. Um, it just keeps not working. And now let's finally go to the number one movie released in 2009. Even though the bulk of its grosses came in in 2010, the December 18th release of Avatar. We're not going to go into too much detail on James Cameron's box office history. We're saving that for a special episode down the line. But let's quickly go over what Avatar meant for the film industry when it's released in 2009 in mid-December. What do you guys remember about going to see this movie in theaters? I'm going to get fired in the next 30 seconds. Uh, I, I think it took me a few weeks. I was eventually like, uh, fine, I'll, I'll see it. 2D, normal size theater. <laughs> Didn't care for it, haven't seen it since. But I'm definitely going to catch it in 3D um, when it is re-released, just so I can have that experience. Because that's what I was told by everyone at the cultural moment, that, oh, well, you didn't see it in 3D. Like, that was the point. It was a night out for you. It wasn't a big event like it was for other folks. And I think that's fair. Honestly, Rebecca, I think I saw this, honestly, like, like in February or March. It took me a while to get to the theater to see this one. It was still playing in 3D, I think. I went to go see this really late into its 3D run sometime in early 2010. Yeah, it's not my favorite movie. I think that it was exceptionally good as a tech demo. I think it showed audiences something theatrically that they had not seen. And I'm very curious to see what happens this year. You know, I, I think that and we've said this before, we're going to say it again in a longer form. You know, the business has proven multiple times that 
you are wrong to assume that James Cameron is going to fail. Right? It's like, is lightning going to strike twice with the Avatar franchise? But given it's James Cameron, it's more like is lightning going to strike for the seventh or eighth time? Like a fifth time. Exactly. (laughs) And so I am not so foolish as to come out here and prophesize doom and gloom for Avatar 2. I'm very curious. I'm curious to see if people show up and if they respond in the same way they responded in 2009 and 2010. I think there was an acknowledgement at the time that, I mean... Plot-wise, character-wise, it's not a good movie. It's Dances with Wolves, but blue. Yeah, I think, Russ, you put it perfectly well. This was a proof of concept for digital cinema, specifically a proof of concept for digital 3D. It was a huge cultural moment, a massive, massive global hit, and in my opinion, took out maybe another two to three interesting James Cameron movies that we will never see because he's been making Avatar 2 since this one came out. Yeah, I mean, I, I I can only agree with that, that I'm happy Cameron got to do Avatar. I'm happy he found a venue for all of these things that interest him. And he says that Avatar 2 is even more of that. And so I hope that that sort of personal emotional hook for Cameron is what grabs audiences as well, and maybe it will be. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you and sort of wishing that we had been able to see another two or three Cameron movies over the last decade that were something else. And that about does it for 2009 at the movies. The first $10 billion year at the domestic box office, we just went over that top 10, not a single superhero movie among those top 10 highest grossing titles here domestically, a surprising result. To close up this long conversation, guys, what was your favorite movie of 2009? And do you have a favorite movie going moment of 2009 that sticks out for you guys? There's a lot of weird stuff that came out in 2009 that I think was significant for, you know, specialty audiences. Lars von Trier's Antichrist came out in 2009. Bong Joon-ho's Mother, which is a phenomenal movie, was 2009, as was Thirst, uh, the vampire movie by Park Chan-wook. Terrific, terrific movie. 2009. Fantastic Mr. Fox, probably Wes Anderson. I would go to bat with that being Wes Anderson's best movie. I love Fantastic Mr. Fox. I think it's great. Uh, Inglorious Bastards by Quentin Tarantino, you know, a movie that was like, oh, is this going to work? And then it it did. That, that is my favorite way. of his. That's my favorite. And 500 Days of Summer. I mean, that's a that's a time capsule yeah, of 2009. Yeah, for real. Yeah. And then like Moon, uh, the Duncan Jones movie Moon was 2009. So that was a standout little effort. Still his best movie. Um, and then an, another one, I think the the most surprising studio movie for me would have been District 9, which Sony released, you know, picked up as this kind of independently produced uh, bizarre Sci-fi social commentary by Neil Blomkamp, his first feature movie, uh, starred Charlotte Copley, who has since gone on to be in a lot of big movies. Um, but that, like, that's a bizarre kind of splooshy, weird sci-fi movie, and and it's a very neat film. It was really neat to see that in theaters and see it with like a studio logo on the front of it. So, oh yeah, Serious Man, the Coen Brothers oh, movie was that year. Yeah, for me, that's the best movie of 2009, the one I enjoyed the most. The movie I keep on going back to, one of my favorite Coen Brothers films. This is actually my movie-going memory. I, I saw it at, oh my goodness, I think it was film forum and I, you remember the opening scene where it's kind of just a, a recreation of that of that jewish parable um, oh love that opening the, yeah. this, the, the woman sitting scene, next yeah. to me an, an older woman sitting next to me just turned to me and was like do you know what's going on and then she started like <laughs> fiddling with her phone like during the i'm like that was bizarre it was a bizarre experience in 2009 that summer 
I went to the drive-in in Atlanta a lot, the Starlight Drive-In, where all screens showed double features. It was like six bucks to get in. And you could go and see the first movie and the second, and then a lot of times just stick around to watch the first movie again. But you just kind of sit there in a maybe like a one-fifth full parking lot, mostly just talking trash with your friends and hanging out. Um, I saw Friday the 13th multiple times like that. I saw the Nick Cage movie Knowing multiple times like that. Um, there were a handful of movies that I saw several times in theaters or at least on the big screen because of that drive-in experience. That was a very good drive-in summer for me. I saw easily probably you know a dozen movies at the drive-in in the summer of, of 2009, maybe even more, uh, and several of them multiple times because of that way that you could just go in and hang out. So uh, those are very good memories. That was a lot of fun. 2009 is actually the year I moved to New York City. I moved to New York on August 7th, 2009. And I remember watching it deep, deep into its theatrical run, Whatever Works, the Woody Allen movie with uh, Larry David. I saw that at the Angelica in uh, Lower Manhattan. And that's that screening room, Rebecca. I don't know if you remember it. You've been there that is right above a subway station. So you're watching a movie and your seat shakes. It's natural 40X, yeah. Yeah, your seat will just vibrate because there's trains running under you and you can hear them as you're watching the film. That was my first movie-going experience in New York City. And uh, I'll always remember that. That's probably going to be my one pick from 2009 of going to the movies. Didn't care much for the film, to be completely honest, but I'll always remember that experience. Your first, your first movie after moving to New York was a Woody Allen movie. Did you plan it that be. way? Had, Had okay. to be. I, I think I might have, to be perfectly honest. I'm not going to be coy and say I didn't. It was probably by design. Well, guys, thank you so much for another marathon recording session here as we looked back on 2009 at the box office. I am Daniel Loria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, joined once again here by Russ Fisher, editorial director at the Box Office Studios, and Rebecca Polly, deputy editor of Box Office Pro. We're back next week with another new episode here on the Box Office Podcast. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to rate and subscribe us. We are produced by Box Office Pro in collaboration with the Box Office Company and Record Edit Podcast. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>